you in Acts chapter 22? Yes. Verse 23. Now I'm one of these guys. I'm going to tell you to turn there and then I'll, I'll start somewhere else. Don't you just love guys like that? Let me give uh, a little bit of background just for those who are just joining us. Uh, by this time in the story, there's a Roman military commander, and he, he, just, he rushed, actually, to Jerusalem one day, just outside the Jewish temple, because he received word that there was a riot taking place. And when he arrived on the scene, he found this guy called the Apostle Paul in the middle of all the action, right there in the center of it. And, and everybody cleared away, and he saw this guy who had been severely beaten by the crowd, and so the Roman officer doesn't know what's going on. He decides to arrest Paul. And in Acts chapter 21, verse 33 and 34, here's what it says. Then the tribune, that is the Roman commander, came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Now some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, He ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks. Now that's where we pick up with the story today, essentially. The Roman commander, or the tribune, is trying to discover the facts about Paul. Who he was, what he had done. Why is this angry mob trying to kill this guy? Now interestingly enough, we'll end today in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. So without losing your place in chapter 22 there, just kind of look over, hopefully, onto the other side of the page, and look at verse 11 very quickly. This will set up our time for for the rest of the day. In Acts chapter 23, verse 11, it says, The following night the Lord, that is Jesus, stood by him, that is Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So very interestingly, here's what the Bible does. As, as often as the Bible ever focuses in on another person like Paul, you can rest assured that really the ultimate goal of God when we come to the Bible is to divert our attention ultimately to Jesus Christ. So here it is, the Roman guard is looking for information about Paul, the facts about Paul, and yet Jesus comes to Paul at the end of our passage and says, as you have testified concerning the facts about me. So for the rest of our time today, we're going to read this passage, and that's what I want us to focus on. Let's see what we can learn concerning the facts about Paul, and then the facts about Jesus, and what God might want to teach us as we consider those things. Let's pray, and then I'll begin. Lord, Lord, we come again this morning. We just ask that you would help. First of all, help me. This is probably the least prepared I I think I've felt in a while for a message like this, but, but that's okay. I remember you said a long time ago through Augustine, that uh, just as Jesus commanded his people and said, don't worry when they call you before kings because it will be my Father from heaven speaking through you at that moment. You say that we can trust as messengers, as preachers, that you'll speak through us at moments like this. So we pray that you would do just that and help us, Lord, to be changed in the way that you desire. And we, we all ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. <clears throat> Acts chapter 22, verse 23. Now, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him, that is Paul, to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting at him like this. And let me pause with the reading for a moment. 
that, that flogging there is something, it, it's a very cruel type of punishment. When you talk about interrogating a suspect, this is probably the, the cruelest form of interrogation you could imagine. Paul very quickly is about to get himself out of this, as we will see. But, but Paul, Paul knows why he's getting himself out of this. You, you'll actually remember, those of you who have read the book of Acts to this point, in chapter 16, Paul and Silas were beaten in the city of Philippi with rods. Now, both Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, as we'll discover about Paul in a moment, and they could have mentioned that at the time and said, hey, we're Roman citizens, we haven't been tried, you really can't do this, it's illegal. But Paul and Silas chose in that moment to endure that punishment and to be beaten with rods, but Paul was not about to take a flogging. The flogging was carried out with an instrument known as, by the Latin name, flagellum. That's where it gets its name, flogging. It was, it was this thing where you had a very stout, sturdy wooden handle, and into that handle were inserted as many as nine leather straps. It was often referred to colloquially as the cat of nine tails, because at the end of these straps, you would have these very sharp pieces of bone and metal. And these long lashes would, would go, and, and the whole purpose of this device was to not only lacerate or produce cuts on the skin of those being interrogated, but to actually take pieces of flesh off. In the hands of a, of a skilled expert, this instrument could actually rip muscle off of the bone. And many people feel this is exactly what happened to Jesus when he was flogged. Jesus was flogged. When you read about scourging or flogging of Jesus, this is what happened. And so Paul, Paul looks up at the situation and, and look at verse 25. When they had stretched him out for the whips. Now picture the scene here. Paul waits for this time and he says, uh, um, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion, now that's another word, that centurion simply means a commander of a hundred troops. So he would be a level below the, the tribune here, which means a commander of a thousand troops. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and he said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. And so the tribune came and said to him, well, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. And the tribune said, well, you don't, you don't look like the sort of guy who could pay for citizenship the way that I did. He said, i I bought this citizenship for a large sum, which as an aside, I'll just say this and move on. Time me on this one. This can't take more than a minute. It's clear that Paul is not out there preaching and promoting the prosperity message. Do you get that? He doesn't look like that? Okay. He doesn't look like he could afford citizenship, much less the prosperity life that is promised to us by so many contemporary preachers. So, that was less than a minute. Let's move on. I bought this citizenship for a large sum, but Paul said, I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So what are the facts about Paul as we get them so far? This is the first day that the Roman officer, the tribune, has encountered Paul, and already, back in chapter 21, verse 39, and chapter 22, verse 3, we've learned that Paul is a Jew. 
So ethnically or racially, he is a Jew, and that, of course, earned him a listening with the crowd that was there that day. And we find here that when it comes to his citizenship or his, his nation, if you would, politically or, or just his country of citizenship, he is a Roman citizen. All right, and that earns him, obviously, some protection here and some legal asylum from certain forms of interrogation. Let's go on to the next day in verse 30. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he bought, or he brought rather Paul down and set him before them. Now, this is the very same group of people when you hear the council or the chief priest, this is the same group of people that Jesus stood before almost 30 years prior to this. The very same people that judged matters according to the Jewish law, <clears throat> if it was thought that those laws were being violated. All right, so here it is, and you can read more about that, by the way, in Luke chapter 22. You can see Jesus standing before that same group of people. You can do that, that later when you go home, if you're not watching the Women's World Cup game. And sorry for those of you who are from Japan. I know, I know it's going to, we've got some, some Japanese folks in here. Um, we're on opposite sides after 12 o'clock. <laughs> so here it is, Paul is standing before the council, and he begins in chapter 23, verse 1, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, would you dare revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people, and he's quoting Exodus chapter 22, verse 28 there, and I'm not some Bible wizard or scholar, I have a cross-reference in my Bible that tells me that's what he's doing, right, so don't be impressed, you can probably do the same when you look at your Bible, right, read those little things, those little letters and then the numbers, it helps you figure out how these things are connected, so here it is, Paul, Paul is going through something very similar to what Jesus went through, is he not? Jesus was standing before them and they struck him and Jesus said the same thing. Why did you command that I be struck? Did I say anything wrong? And Luke is trying, as Luke writes this, he's trying to show us the parallels between what Jesus went through and what Paul went through. And so as he goes through here, we learn something new about Paul as we get into verse 6. It says, now when Paul perceived that one part of this council were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, and I'm not going to get too much into what what those two groups are. Here's what I do. If I, if I read something in the Bible and I can't tell what those things mean, then what I do is I get this thing called a Bible dictionary and I just look up the word Pharisee and I look up the word Sadducee and you can do the same thing. If you don't have a Bible dictionary, come see us. We've got plenty of them. And this is 2011, so most of you will just Google it, right? Google Pharisee and Sadducee. You'll know more than I do within two minutes. <clears throat> But suffice it to say for this time, all we need to know about the Sadducees and the Pharisees today is what we read in this passage about the differences between them and the fact that Paul belonged to one of these parties. In verse 6, Paul perceived one were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, and he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. So Paul was a legacy Pharisee. 
right? So this gives you very preferential treatment almost anywhere you go. You guys know how that works. Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a great dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For you see in verse 8, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. I'll refer you to one more book that talks about the difference between these two things. You can either track down a guy named Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, and he writes at length about the differences between these guys. Or you can track down a more modern writer from the 19th century, Alfred Edersheim. Alfred Edersheim wrote about these. You can read about two to three pages, and it will help you understand the difference. One of the big differences, interestingly enough, was the difference between that age-old debate concerning predestination and free will. The Pharisees came down on the side of predestination, but they also acknowledged the importance of the, the will of man and the choice of man. And the the Sadducees completely rejected the idea of God's providence and predestination at all. Uh, And they they simply thought that we were basically the product of our own choices. They they bear a very, very great resemblance to most people in our culture today. Maybe even half of us in the room. So that's not to call you a a Sadducee, but just on that one point, you may lean more toward that direction than, than, say, the Apostle Paul would have. All right, so, and I know some of you are having discussions about this based on what I said last week. And I just want to encourage you in those discussions. Have them. Have them together. Try not to get off on your own as you, as you think about those things. That's when we get weird. As Chris DeRocco always says, he who grows alone grows weird. Okay? And then I think there's a corollary to that, is there not? He who grows weird grows alone. I think... I think it works both ways there. So let me find my place back in the Bible, back in the spirit here. Uh, The Sadducees in verse 8 didn't acknowledge any of these things which are very essential to believe if you're ever going to be a Christian. I can't imagine anyone saying they're a Christian without believing in the resurrection or angels or spirits. It was an angel who announced that Jesus would be born. Jesus was raised from the dead. If he's not been raised, you're still in your sins. And it is by the Holy Spirit that he was raised. How in the world can you be a Christian if you're a naturalist and you don't believe that there's anything like supernatural things? I've never understood that. Right? So you... Let me make my first point of application here since I don't have much of a structure. You know what's interesting about Paul is up to this point we've learned that he's a Jew, he's a Roman citizen, and he's a Pharisee. But the most important thing about Paul is what we're going to learn in verse 11. Let me fast forward very quickly and then we'll come back to the rest of the passage. There is someone in verse 11 identified as the Lord. The following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The most important thing about Paul, the most important aspect of his identity was not that he was a Jew... It was not that he was a Roman citizen or even that he was a Pharisee. It was that he was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the one thing about the Apostle Paul which most directed the course of his life. Let me ask you something. What aspect of your identity most determines the course of your life? 
Is it your race? And before you say no too quickly, are you free in Jesus Christ to consider entering into a relationship that could lead to marriage with someone of another race? Or does your race so govern and control the direction of your life that that would be an impossibility to you even if we're looking at someone who truly honors and loves Jesus Christ? Is the most important thing about you your country of citizenship? And before you answer no too quickly... Consider for a moment how you vote for particular people in elections. When you, if you get around to considering the business of foreign policy, what is the deciding factor for you? Is it simply what you think at the end of the day is best for this country? Or do you actually consider from Jesus' perspective what is best for all people in the world and particularly the advancement of his gospel in the world. Acts chapter 23 verse 9 after announcing that he was a Pharisee Paul gets on to it and says here, Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended very sharply. And you'll remember what they said about Jesus. What, you remember what Pontius Pilate said about Jesus at the end of everything? Listen to this. Can't miss the similarities. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. Isn't it interesting that you could be amongst people who really claim to to love God and follow God, and, and yet we're concerned that when some people get in their midst, they can be torn to pieces. Now, I won't say anything disparaging about our own church, or your church, or anyone else's church, but... I do know and I do speak with people who do not come to places like this on Sunday morning and I know that they are always concerned about the equivalent of something, the emotional equivalent of something like this happening to them in this setting. Coming in and having the people of God tear them to pieces. Verse 10. The tribune, afraid that this would happen, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take Paul away from them by force and to bring him into the barracks. And then... Verse 11, the following night, the Lord, that is Jesus, stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. I just want to do a couple of things before I close and pray. The first thing that I want to do is I kind of just want to help us see one very important thing that came to me as I was reading this and thinking about and praying for our church in particular. Back in, in Acts chapter 19, in fact, you can flip there very quickly. Don't lose your place. But in Acts chapter 19, and I believe in verse 21, the Apostle Paul is discussing his plans. 
Proverbs 16.9 says that the plans of the heart belong to man, but the Lord establishes his steps. And in, in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, we see the Apostle Paul letting us in, uh, get a sneak peek into his plans. He says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia, where you have the Thessalonians and the Philippians, and then Achaia, where you have the Corinthians, And he planned to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see where? Rome. So here Paul is back in chapter 22 and 23 in Jerusalem. His plan was to go after this to Rome, but it looks like he may not get there. He's been beaten to within an inch of his life. He's now in custody. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. But then this person known as the Lord stands by Paul while he's there in prison, and I think about this often, and I know some of you have relatives who are in prison as well, and it's good to pray that the Lord would stand by them while they're there. My, my own brother, my older brother is in prison at the, at the moment, and I was praying this as I read this this week. If you, if you have relatives or friends in, in jail, pray that the Lord would stand by them and strengthen them. But here, here it is, you'll, you'll notice, Jesus eventually is going to get Paul to Rome. Just as Paul was planning to go to Rome. But how and in what manner? How does Jesus accomplish this? Paul is beaten up. He suffers tremendously. He is nearly flogged. So he goes through great anxiety and fear. He is put into a cell. And he's there for quite some time. I doubt he's getting very good or serious medical attention. Or maybe he was now that he was a citizen. Who knows? But this is not an ideal circumstance for Paul. He would never have chosen to put himself here. And yet, hear me me clearly. Yet, it is precisely this path of suffering that Jesus is using to get Paul to where he needs to be. Some of us are suffering tremendously right now, not only physically, but emotionally and otherwise. We're we're suffering. And, And sometimes it requires us to slow down, to read the Bible, and to get God's perspective of our suffering. Sometimes suffering is not something to be immediately avoided, but if you find yourself in in suffering, then ask the Lord, is there a purpose for this that I'm not seeing? How are you using this suffering to take me where you intend? To take me. And that's not easy to do. I don't say that lightly. That's not just pastor speak. I have to do the same thing. What does Jesus mean by this suffering and how is he using it to, to take us where we need to go? Because I, I can promise you what he wants to do is just like with Paul, he wants to put you before people that you might be able to testify to the facts about him in the next place that he sends you. I love Matt and Betty Bristol have been a great example of this, as Betty is battling cancer and going to MD Anderson in Houston, Texas, and and going back and forth. They're, They're so quick to share with us the opportunities God has put before them to share and to testify to the facts about Jesus Christ in front of people that they would never have met if it were not for this illness and this trial. Consider that God is putting you before people when you suffer people you would not have met unless you were suffering and that he wants you to testify to the facts about Jesus Christ. And the last thing that I want to do is I think we would miss the point entirely if we did not take a moment to actually do here what Paul was doing in Jerusalem, 
to do in Richmond, Virginia, the very same thing that Paul was doing in Jerusalem that got him into so much trouble. And that is, according to verse 11, to testify to the facts about Jesus. So if you have your Bibles open again, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now this is not something I prepared ahead of time, so it may not pop up on the slide unless they're very fast back there. No pressure. You don't have to do it. If you don't have a Bible, you can get up at this moment, and there should be some on some trays in the back. Please go ahead and get one or share with the person next to you. But whatever you do, don't miss what we're about to read, these facts about Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that is his brother, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So here are the facts about Jesus. This Nazarene carpenter who grew up in the first century there in Palestine, here are the facts. He he died, verse 3 for our sins according to the Scriptures. So it's indisputable that Jesus died. There are some who practice Islam. The Muslims are incorrect on this point. Jesus actually did die. And He didn't simply die for whatever reason, of old age, of some illness. He died, according to verse 3, for our sins. Not His own sins. He had no sins of His own for which He needed to die. He died for our sins as our substitute in our place. And there was a reason he needed to do that. But he died for our sins. He was buried as the evidence of his death. He was then raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then he appeared as the evidence of his resurrection to Peter, to James, to the apostles, to more than 500 people at one time. This is not a hallucination. hallucinations, experts will tell you, it's always a private kind of occurrence. You don't get 500 people seeing the same hallucination at once. And just to back up his story, notice Paul's language. Most of these people he showed himself to are still alive when, when Paul wrote this. In other words, go ask them. That's at least 251 people you can ask to verify this story. Christianity is based not on myth, or superstition, but fact. The facts about Jesus. Not simply the facts about how people ought to live and what we think is good, but the facts about Jesus Christ, His life, His death, and His resurrection, and what that all means. So here it is. Here are the facts in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And by the time Paul ends in verse 11, he says, Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preached, and this is what you believed. And as Chris said earlier, what does it really mean to believe in Jesus Christ? Here's where we end with this message. What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? 
I thought about this this week, and, and something happened. I, one, one morning, I was in my kitchen with my, my two older daughters, Kira and Brianna. Kira is four, and Brianna is two and a half. And, you know, they, you, you get to know your daughters, and they have these little things that they like that distinguish them from each other. Well, they're both having a bowl of cereal, and Kira, Kira likes to have fresh water while she's eating her bowl of cereal. Actually, she doesn't. She, she really just eats the cereal and leaves the milk in the bowl, and we're trying to work on that. But Brianna is different. She doesn't want fresh water with her cereal. She wants a cup of milk. So I get these sippy cups out, and they're, they're the kind of sippy cups that you can't see through, you know, and, and, and even more importantly, that don't spill, which it's, it's hard to find a sippy cup that keeps Brianna from spilling. Just She's going to find herself immortalized in sermons. Uh, but, but here it is. I, I got them out, these cups, and I gave Brianna her cup of milk, and she started to drink it. And I put the cup of water down in front of Kira, and she looks back at me and says, Dad, is that milk or water? And I said, Kira, it's water. And she said, okay. And she picked it up and just drank it. She believed me. Therefore, she drank. What does it mean to believe with the whole self, with the whole life? And what does that look like when it happens? See, in our culture, we think about believing in Jesus Christ, and here's what that amounts to for some of us. I heard the facts about Jesus Christ, and I agree with them mentally. Even the devil, James, the book of James will tell you that. Even the devil believes in Jesus that way. He knows the facts about Jesus Christ. He agrees with them mentally. He's not a believer. He's not a Christian. He doesn't believe. So what does the Bible mean when it calls you and it calls me to believe in Jesus Christ? What does it look like to believe with the whole self? Well, go back to chapter 22, verse 16. It means, first of all, that we should respond to the message about Jesus Christ in the manner that God prescribes in the Bible. Not, not to sit down in our own committees and to decide what a sufficient response looks like, but to, to respond in the way that God tells us to respond. In simple faith, the same way that my daughter picked up that cup and drank it. Acts chapter 22, verse 16, Ananias is explaining what Paul must do in responding to Jesus Christ. He's well aware of the facts. He knows that Christ confronted him on the road. He's, his heart is turning toward Christ. And Ananias says to him, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. God has given us a way to demonstrate our belief in Christ with the whole self. And now why do some of you wait? Rise and be baptized, washing your sins away, calling on his name. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for what you communicated through my voice to everyone here. <clears throat> we trust you for the eternal results. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not yet a believer in your son, Jesus Christ, that that would change right now and that they would seek the first opportunity to rise and be baptized and to wash their sins away, calling on his name. And for those of us who are believers, help us to remember that the most important aspect 
<clears throat> the most important thing about who we are is not the citizenship that we hold, whether of the United States or another country. It's not our race. It's not our denomination, the religious group that we say we belong to. It's, it's the fact that we are followers of Jesus Christ because he in his mercy shed his blood for our sins and spoke to us that the dead might be raised and that we might have new life. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. Lord, we thank you for sending your spirit to lead us to the choice and bringing us to believe. And everybody said, amen.